Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a new year, a new opportunity to study. Each of these years, Father, is marking the time between when you have um, brought us into this world and when you will bring us into your presence. And these years come and go, Father, according to your will and timing and purpose. And uh, we enjoy this time, Father, for its intended use, that is to serve you and to bring the gospel to those who need to hear it. And, Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to serve such a good and gracious God. And we thank you, Lord, that we're still here to do that. But uh, we also know, Lord, that it's a time that's meant to pass. And one day, Father, we are with you. And as Paul said, whether we are with the body or absent the body, we serve to please. So we ask, Lord, for the insight we need through the scriptures tonight, that we might serve you in ways that please you. And then we look forward to that day, Father, when we will serve you in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. All right, we open up in chapter 7, having just finished chapter 6. Numerically, it works that way, of course. And that will give us some opportunity to understand chapter 7 a little better. Because as you remember, in chapter 6, Jesus was feeding the thousands of people with bread. And then we said he crossed that body of water in a miraculous way. And then he explained to the crowd that followed him later that they were following him for the wrong reasons. They should be seeking the bread that comes from heaven, the manna, etc., etc. As we looked at all of that in chapter 6, we saw this striking parallel in all of those details between what was going on there and what had happened in the past in Exodus in the story of Israel leaving Egypt. And we came to see that John wanted us to notice those parallels because he wanted us to understand that in that experience of Jesus, we are seeing fulfillment of the signs of Christ that were evident in the Exodus story. So all those details of Exodus were played out in a certain way to teach us about a Christ who would come. And here we see in John chapter 6 the the Christ himself fulfilling, meeting all of those pictures The most dramatic of those pictures, of course, was the Passover, which was inaugurated at the Exodus. Jesus has yet to fulfill that in his body in the story of John. But even just in the fact that John mentioned to us that these events in chapter six came as the feast of the Passover was near. That was just one more of those moments that John used to try to tie our mind back to the Exodus, to connect chapter six of John with the Exodus story. So now as we begin chapter seven. Let's see if we can find a similar pattern, not just because we want to, but let's see if the elements show up again. Is John using this scene to do something similar, as he's done really with every chapter so far in this book, to illustrate how Jesus fulfills some Old Testament picture of Messiah? Well, notice as we open up in chapter 7 that we're told this takes place as another feast approaches, a feast called the Feast of Booths. And before we look at how that connection is being made now in this chapter, let's just set the scene. The events of chapter 7 happen six months after the events of chapter 6. We know that because of the timing of these two feasts that have been mentioned. John says Jesus didn't venture down to Jerusalem during that intervening six months because he knew that he had enemies there. The ones he calls the Jews were seeking to kill him. And whenever John calls those living in Judea the Jews, he simply does so to distinguish them from those who lived up in the Galilee, but they're both Jews in each case. So in reality, when you hear the word the Jews, you're really talking about the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and the surrounding Judean region who were violently opposed to what Jesus stood for and all that he was doing. So in those six months, Jesus continued to teach in the Galilee. Then in verse two, John gives us this timestamp reference telling us that the Feast of Booths was near. Now, the Feast of Booths, or you may have heard it called the Feast of Tabernacles, commemorates the Jews' arrival in the Promised Land under Joshua. On the Jewish calendar, it occurred six months after the Feast of Passover. It was first celebrated by the Jews when they were in the land, after they entered under Joshua. And it involves a number of things, but its key feature is the living in tents, in booths, 
where the Jews would go back to living outdoors in a tent for the period of one week during this festival as a way of remembering how their ancestors lived when they were wandering in the desert. And even in the time of Joshua, they did that to remember their ancestors who had wandered during those years under Moses. More importantly, though, these two feasts, the Feast of Passover of John 6 and the Feast of Booths of John 7, they are two of three feasts in the calendar that required Jewish men to travel down to Jerusalem and observe the feast in that city. So three times a year, Jewish men had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate three of the feasts. These two, plus the Feast of Pentecost. They interestingly also represent the bookends on the Jewish feast year. They are the first feast and the last feast in the Jewish calendar. So in the six months between John 6 and John 7, what's transpired? Well, most notably, Jesus' notoriety has grown probably exponentially since the events of John chapter 6. I mean, he had this very, very dramatic public miracle of feeding thousands of people, which would have elevated him to rock star status beyond even where he had been already among the general population of Israel, particularly in the Galilee. I mean, not only is he doing impressive things, but anyone who can feed you from nothing is a real valuable asset. So he's got real star power now in that region. But as you're going to see here at the beginning of chapter 7, it's also produced enemies for him, as John says, which explains why he wants to remain in the Galilee, at least for now. He's not interested in a confrontation with people who intend to kill him. Not until the timing is right. Timing is everything. God's timing is all that stands between those who cheer Jesus on being overrun by those who want to put an end to him. And that's the central theme of this chapter and even of some that follow. But I want you to start narrowing our focus as I've set up this puzzle of sorts. If John chapter 6 was the, the exodus fulfilled through the events of what John portrayed in chapter 6, what's the correlation, what's the connection between the events of this chapter and this feast of booths that's being used as the backdrop? And that's the puzzle we want to solve. And the central theme here is on the conflict between those in Israel who are cheering Jesus on and those who are opposed to him. How is that central to the idea of the Feast of Booths? Well, that's the puzzle we're going to solve tonight. In fact, the opening line of the chapter really serves as a topical sentence for us in this regard. There were some in Israel who would accept what Jesus said about himself, and there were some in Israel who would not. And only those who had heard from God could and would accept. And those who have not heard from God are not going to accept. And this division existed even in Jesus' own household, among his own brothers. Verse 5, John says, not even his own family, his brothers, were believing in him. Now, his brothers here refers to his half-brothers. That would include Jude and James, who wrote the New Testament letters by the same name. And there were others as well. Obviously, those two men I just mentioned, Jude and James, came to believe in Jesus after his resurrection. Maybe others in his family did as well. But at this point, Jesus is just the older brother desperate for attention with some impressive tricks up his sleeve and jealous brothers. So in verse 3, jumping back up, Jesus' brothers offer him some friendly, helpful advice. They tell Jesus to leave the Galilee on the occasion of the Feast of Booths and to go to Jerusalem, as all men are supposed to do in Israel at this time. And while he's there, use the opportunity, the stage, to announce himself in that community as Messiah and to do the same things there that he has been doing in the Galilee. They insinuate that a real prophet is to be seen and heard in Jerusalem. So if Jesus wants to be received by the greatest crowds in the greatest city, then he's going to have to be prepared to play on the largest stage. Like the song says, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. That's the concept. That's the mindset they're proposing. That advice is neither friendly nor helpful. Because first, we know they were not believing in him. So there is nothing they could offer him in the form of advice that would have had his best interests at heart. For on the contrary, as unbelievers, their desires, their values, their instincts, their very nature is, according to Scripture, set against God, whether they realize it or not. That, in other words, it is as if they're a fish trying to breathe air. They have no ability to align themselves with God. Hebrews says that without faith, 
It is impossible to please God, that is, to do anything aligned with his wishes or will. So, by the very nature of who they are, their advice cannot be helpful or friendly. Except, I guess, if it were to just happen by coincidence to align with God. But I think even that defies the scripture. Scripture says we don't fall into God's will even coincidentally as an unbeliever. We are always opposed to him, whether we realize it or not. Secondly, this is not helpful or friendly advice because we can see what they're really trying to do. They're baiting him here, hoping that he'll take their advice, but in so doing, they can expose him as the fraud that they assume him to be. They're not believing in him. So when he says, I'm the Messiah, they think he's wrong. And they want to show that in a different way. So they accuse him of hiding, of hiding away in in the Galilee, suggesting that he had become popular only because he was playing the part of a big fish in a small pond. And if he had reversed that, then we'll see just who you really are. He's throwing fastballs at Bush League hitters, basically. And what happens if you make your case under the bright lights in the big city? Just how successful will you be under those circumstances? Notice they presume in verse 4 that Jesus was, in fact, seeking to be known publicly. They, they presume that is his goal. They're daring him to submit himself to the harsh criticism of the religious leaders in Jerusalem during what was, by the way, the most popular feast of the year. You might have thought maybe Passover was, but traditionally this was the one that gained the greatest participation among those in Israel because it was by its nature a celebratory feast. It was a party. It was to celebrate getting into the kingdom. That's its picture. But in in historical terms, it was a celebration of getting into the land, into the promised land. So it was the one everyone wanted to be a part of. So they're taunting him to risk everything, and they're expecting him to fail in the process. The brother's advice is bad advice, of course, for all the reasons we can see. But it rests on two assumptions, bad assumptions, that we can still make today. Many people do in the faith, even though they aren't aware of it. First, the brothers have assumed that Jesus wasn't a contender for the role of Messiah unless he gained the backing and the support of the people. His small healing and teaching engagement that had been centered in the Galilee wasn't going to meet the test of true Messiahship because it wasn't big enough yet. It hadn't been broadly accepted yet. It wasn't in enough places. So he needed to present himself to the leaders in Jerusalem and to the masses there. And if they accepted him, well, then I guess maybe we'll have to concede that you're the Messiah. As if that's how it works. Right? That assumption is obviously wrong. And if these boys, if these brothers had paid close attention to their own Old Testament scriptures, they would have known this for themselves. Because the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah, like David in the Psalms, like Moses in the, in the law, all of them foretell that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Instead, he's going to be embraced, the scripture says, by a people who are not God's people, which was a reference to the Gentile church. Furthermore, the Old Testament foretold that the Messiah would die a shameful death hanging on a tree, and he would do so at the hands of those he came to save, his own people, that is, the Jewish people. So clearly, God's plan for his own son, even in advance of his coming, was not for mass acceptance. It wasn't a popularity contest. There was no intent for that, which leads to the second assumption these boys made, which is that the truth of who someone is, the truth of any issue or the identity of any individual is determined by opinion or acceptance of the majority by public opinion. The brothers expected that a Messiah could only rise to power with popular support. So like a politician seeking public office, the title of Messiah was something that was bestowed by the adoring public upon a worthy contender. And that was how you became Messiah. That's how the whole thing worked. And therefore, the true Messiah, by definition, would be the one who could persuade the masses concerning his identity. But if Jesus couldn't convince his own family, his own brothers, well, what chance did he stand then to be truly considered the Messiah? I mean, if we know you and we don't believe you're the Messiah, what are the odds? Well, the odds are you're an idiot. But you don't know that about yourself, right? Because you assume if my opinion is in the majority, I must have the right idea. Once again, that thinking couldn't be further from the truth. The truth of any matter does not depend on public opinion. Jesus was Messiah. Because the Father appointed him to that role, and the truth of that appointment didn't rest on how many people accepted it to be true. That was true 
if just one person believed it. That's true. If no one believed it, it doesn't depend on how many people believe it. John MacArthur's famous rant about this when he talks about how small group Bible study has so often gone wrong. And when we sit around with people in a small group and we read a passage of scripture and then somebody says, well, what do you think that means? And then we go around the circle with everyone giving their opinion. And John MacArthur says it doesn't matter what you think it means. It, it, it has a meaning that doesn't depend on what you think. In fact, what matters is what it means whether you were ever born or not. That's the point. What does it mean from the author's point of view? That's what we're supposed to try to figure out in terms of scriptural exegesis and in terms of the issue of truth generally. Truth, epistemology, the knowledge of what is true or what is truth doesn't rest on public opinion. Yet... The sinful, unbelieving world does think that way. They have always measured truth like a popularity contest. Have they not? Whatever position is accepted by the majority is deemed to be the truth. And we naturally assume that the more people who agree with a given position, especially if it's ours, then the more worthy it is to be considered the truth. That is simply relativistic thinking, and it is never the way we discover truth. For example, prior to the 15th century, most people were convinced that the earth was flat, And if you went too far in any one direction, you fell off and descended into hell. That was popular opinion, and it was also false. Similarly, most people used to believe that sex prior to marriage was immoral. And then popular thinking on that matter began to change. And for many people, that meant truth changed. The morality of fornication, or for that matter, of adultery or homosexuality, is not determined by public opinion. It has a truth that's independent of views of humanity because the lawgiver decides what is lawful. And the lawgiver wrote a book to explain that. And the book hadn't changed. And so fornication, as my example goes, has become morally acceptable to the world simply because it's widely practiced, not because God changed his view of what is sin or because we have new revelation from him on the matter, merely because public opinion shifted. So we know Christ's mission was not a public relations campaign. He did not come to earth with the intent to orchestrate his work in such a manner that he'd win public approval. And in so doing, therefore become their Messiah. He was their Messiah, whether they accepted it or not. And by that same token, we don't want to try to establish the truth of the gospel message that we've been entrusted with in the minds of those who might hear us, by building popular acceptance of its claims. Because our gospel is not more true simply because millions of people believe it. It is not less true because the whole world mocks it. It is true regardless. But if we use those measuring sticks as our guide, we will modify, inevitably, even if we don't intend to, we will modify the message to gain the approval. And with a world that is, according to John, hates the light and will avoid it at all costs for it exposes their evil deeds, then you can be assured that the only way you're going to gain their acceptance broadly is by removing those aspects of the gospel that make it the gospel. Because men are naturally set against it. Only by the power of God in the heart does someone find that resistance changed to acceptance. Scripture tells us that in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Christ. In the end, and that's by God's power as well. I'm not saying everyone will become a believer and be saved. I'm saying, as the saying goes, there's only believers and not yet believers. The only question is whether you're going to become a believer in time to gain the benefits of it. In fact, turning back to chapter 7 now to continue on, look what Jesus says in response to his unbelieving brothers. Verse 6, he says to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I did not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So in response, Jesus says something we've heard before. He says, my time has not yet come. You remember this? Strike any bells? Remember back in chapter 2 when... His mom told him something very similar. In fact, even there, the circumstances were very similar because Mary had been pushing Jesus a little to enter into the limelight in a manner and at a time that was not consistent with the Father's plans. 
So Jesus rebuked his mother back at that point for trying to dictate God's timetable. And I think you're seeing the same thing here. Jesus issues a rebuke here to his brothers for making the very same mistake. And when it's time for him to go into the public eye, into the midst of a feast in Jerusalem, trust me, he will do so. It's just not here and it's just not now and it's just not this feast. It's going to be a different set of circumstances when the timing is right that he will do exactly what they're suggesting. But it's not now. And then Jesus adds, you know, your time, it's always opportune for you. And what he means is, you, my earthly brothers, are not constrained in your decision making by considerations of what the will of God might be for you. You're not constrained at all by his will. That's the problem. On the contrary, as unbelievers, you act as you please at all times. You don't check in and find with the Father first, is this the right thing for me to do or not? That's what he means by it's always an opportunity for you to do whatever you want, as all unbelievers do. In that sense, it was always the right time for them. But Jesus was strictly bound to the will of the Father, which is the definition of sinlessness. Secondly, Jesus' brothers could venture into Jerusalem at any time without fear of persecution because, Jesus said, they were of the world. Jesus, speaking here of spiritual identities, you know, everyone has a spiritual identity. Every person's identity is either aligned with God or aligned with the world, the Bible would say. Since his brothers were unbelieving, we know, therefore, that they were spiritually aligned with the world. And another way to say it is they were aligned with the devil. They were aligned with the one who is the prince of the power of this air, the one who has dominion for a time. You are born in the nature of your father, the devil, as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. But by God's grace, we can be born again. And by being born again, we acquire a new nature. And that new spiritual nature aligns us with God as opposed to where we began. It's as if our genealogy has been clipped, pruned off of one tree and grafted into God's family tree, which traces our origins back to Christ as opposed to Adam. So all those who are aligned with the world belong to Satan and he knows who are his and he doesn't waste energy trying to tear down his own within the world, at least not as a broad strategy, except where he may find some advantage in doing so. An advantage for him may just be in stoking fear, in creating mayhem and destruction. I mean, there is some value in him for him in doing that generally. But as Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So as a broad strategy, Satan is not about going after the unbelieving world. And so Satan and the world that, that he has under his allegiance only oppose God and those who are spiritually aligned with him. The world opposes Christ. The world opposes the Bible. The world opposes Christianity. And to an extent, Christians. It does so because these things are the spiritual enemies of darkness, because the truth is light and it exposes the evil deeds of the world. So Jesus says it's safe for these brothers to be in Jerusalem, but it's not for me which becomes increasingly evident in this chapter. So Jesus rejects the brother's advice, but then you notice in verse 10, he still goes. In fact, you might even wonder, did Jesus just lie to his brothers? Because it appears as though Jesus said to them, I can't go, you go. And then after they were gone, he went anyway. Well, no, because Jesus' rejection of the idea of attending was not the idea of going, period. It was in going in the manner in which they prescribed for the purposes they orchestrated in their company under this plan of action that they laid out in front of him. He rejected that whole idea. But if he hadn't gone to this feast, he'd have been violating the rules of what were required for Jewish men. And he's not going to sin. So he still went to the feast as required. But he did it on his own terms, separate from his brothers, in secret, after they had already left. To help us get a sense of the environment Jesus was walking into, John now gives us three verses of background that lead us into the rest of this chapter. Verses 11 through 13. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. All of this is spoken about Jesus before he ever gets there. This is what was going on in the city prior to his arrival. You can see Jesus' concerns were well-founded. Even though he has not yet made an appearance, you already have the Jewish leadership moving around in the city waiting to find him, assuming he's coming, because as a feast required, he would be there. 
And this is not a friendly sort of inquiry that they're doing here. They're looking for him because they want to accuse him of something and they want to condemn him. Meanwhile, as that's going on, you see the crowds themselves are all talking about him. They're all grumbling about Jesus. He's become the talk of Israel. The backwater rabbi from the Galilee has the entire city of Jerusalem talking about him in his absence during the largest celebration in the Jewish calendar year. That says something about the impact that this man is having at this stage of his ministry. The talk runs along two lines, as we might expect. First, John says there were those who were saying Jesus was a good man. Now, these people were generally supportive, it would sound, and they're defending him. It appears, at least at some level, that he would appear to be having good intentions or good effect in his ministry. Then, of course, on the other hand, you have these people who are claiming Jesus was leading the people astray. In other words, they're saying Jesus is making false claims about himself, claiming to be something that he's not, trying to trick the people. Now, of course, we're not surprised to learn that Jesus has opponents in the city, but are you surprised to hear that he has his supporters? Well, before you make any assumptions, let's be careful about what we think of when we think of a supporter here. There are those who are saying he is a good man, but notice what they're not saying. They aren't saying he is the Messiah. And as we've said before, there's a big difference between saying Jesus is a good person or a good teacher or even a good prophet, if you want to go that far. There's differences between all of those and saying he is God, which is what he was claiming. Jesus wasn't claiming to be a good person. He wasn't claiming to be a good teacher. He isn't claiming to even be a prophet. He is claiming to literally be God. You don't see anyone making that public declaration, though. In fact, the third point John makes in verse 13 says no one was willing to speak about him even openly, even with the words they were using. Now, why would they be so unwilling to share their opinions of Jesus publicly? Well, the logical, obvious answer is they're afraid of the same religious leaders who are running around right now trying to find the guy, which tells us that the leaders were so opposed to Jesus that no one dared risk crossing them in their opposition against Jesus. But it also tells us that even those who supported Jesus weren't really willing to take a public stand. I mean, they would support him, but only if no one was looking or listening. And it's into that environment that Jesus chooses to travel incognito. But then, at a point in the week of the feast, he exposes himself quite dramatically now, going into the temple court, and setting up shop and beginning to teach the crowds. And that's where we go now, verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So in the larger courtyard of the temple, if you don't know much about the, the temple structure that existed in this day, I'm not going to take time to explain it. But suffice to say, there's a very large open area of court that was part of the Temple Mount. And Jesus is in this area known as the Court of the Women. And he begins to teach. And as he does, so he, he attracts a large crowd. And it would have been hard to do that because there had already been a lot of people around on this feast. And word gets out quickly that Jesus is there and that he's teaching. And again, his teaching astonishes the crowd. This is something that's happened every time. And they wonder in this case, how is it that someone who's not been trained as a Pharisee could learn so much about such important spiritual matters? As if to suggest that knowledge of God can only be obtained through man-made institutions of higher learning. And that if you lack that training, you're somehow barred from God being able to educate you. Well, Jesus answered them saying, look, I'm just delivering what the Father has given me. In other words, I'm just speaking the word of God directly to you. And if you're feeling the impact of that truth, then it's simply evidence of its source. And when you hear the truth directly from God through his word, you're going to know it. You're going to know it's from God. It's going to stand out in your heart in a way that is both unexplainable and also undeniable. Like the men on the road to Emmaus, you may remember at the end of Luke's gospel, who were listening to Jesus teach them as they walked, not knowing at the time that it was Jesus. Later, they realized that it had been Jesus this whole time. And this is the remark they made in Luke 24:32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? 
They're reflecting back on how they felt in the midst of that moment earlier as they heard the word spoken from Christ. And though we may not all have it quite with such intensity because we're not in his presence physically in the same way, nevertheless, I think there is a common experience here. As the word of God is expounded to us through the lips of a man or the letters of a book, it is made real to us in our heart by the power of the spirit living in us. That's the only way it comes to be known truly inside us. And that is itself affirmation to us that what we're hearing is from God. Jesus adds in verse 17 that those who are willing to do the will of the Father possess the discernment to recognize whether the teaching Jesus delivers is truly from him, from the Father. Those who've been given the heart to know and obey God's will also possess the ability to recognize his words. Jesus is basically expressing the same thought in here that he expresses in simpler terms elsewhere in the Gospels when he says, let those who have ears to hear, hear. That it is, if you will, God's empowering of us through our salvation itself, which then opens our ears to understand Scripture in self-evident ways. Not that we understand it in all ways, but that we can be, it can be self-evident to us as Scripture, as truth. If we wish to know the truth and you want to avoid false teaching, then you have to be the one who is willing to obey the Lord. And if our heart is directed toward obedience, first and foremost, in having been saved by grace, and then secondly, by having a heart that is seeking him truly, that is obedient, in other words, then we're going to recognize and follow God's word. But if your heart is dead for lack of faith, or if it is deceived by sin and therefore unwilling to repent and follow him and live according to what we know, then we are in danger of missing the truth when it is revealed to us. I've seen that example in both the cases of unbelievers and believers. Certainly as an unbeliever, the truth of Scripture is nonsense and we will not perceive it, except in a very superficial and misleading way. But secondly, even among believers who are insistent on disobedient and rebellious lifestyles, God allows us to live in our decisions in many cases, and the sin of our life will cloud our judgment and bring us to a point where we may not be listening as we could be. Notice what Jesus says next. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The nation of Israel revered Moses as a prophet, right? They, they held him in high esteem. And yet they didn't do what he told them to do. Reconcile that. They thought he was a great man, and yet they don't do what he said to do. The word of God delivered through him, in other words, asked them to do. Now, we know no man could fully keep it. That, that's evident. But here's the essential problem of Israel. They weren't willing to truly do the will of God. They weren't willing to do God's will because their very nature precluded it, for the most part, as an unbelieving nation. And sinful flesh simply cannot obey God, according to Scripture. Romans says in Romans 8 that for the mind that is set on flesh is death. The mind that is set on spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The nation was unrighteous for failing to keep the word of God, yet they were accusing Jesus of being the one who needed to be put to death for not doing the right thing. So he points out that all he's done so far is just repeat the words of God, which any God-fearing person would have recognized and accepted. Yet his critics, the obviously unrighteous ones who weren't keeping the law of Moses, are the ones who seek to kill him. And he's just pointing out the hypocrisy that he's being judged by people who can't possibly know what the truth is because by their own lives, they prove they're not listening to the word of God. Now, at this point, of course, things get testy. So, verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marveled. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath... You circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So first, the crowd thinks Jesus is suffering from a persecution complex because they doubt his assertion that someone is seeking to kill him. What? You have a demon. You think someone wants to kill you? They said, you must be demon-possessed. I find that an interesting comment, by the way. This is a side note. Uh, what would we have said to someone under those circumstances? If we thought they were exaggerating the degree of jeopardy they were in, you know, we might say, you're crazy. But you notice you never hear that in the Bible. No one in Scripture ever accuses another person in the Scriptures of being crazy, mentally ill, in other words. Instead, they always assume they have a demon. 
In other words, acts of insanity in the Bible are always explained by demonic activity. Moving on, Jesus ignores their attempts at pretense, which is all that is. They're pretending, in other words, not to understand what he's talking about. And he goes, stays on the offensive. He reminds them of the miracle that started their opposition in the city of Jerusalem. And he's referring here to the moment that he healed the paralytic back in John chapter 5. That was the first major miracle he did in Jerusalem. And it's still really the only one that he's done that's, uh, that would have been on their minds at this point in, the, in his ministry. Remember, Jesus did virtually nothing in Jerusalem for all of his ministry, other than when he made those trips into Jerusalem for the feasts and when he died. So... For the most part, all his ministry has been in the Galilee, and there's this one lone example in the city. This was the last miracle he performed, and it's the one that got him in hot water in that city with the Pharisees because they objected to him healing somebody on a Sabbath because for them that constituted work. And so as a result, they sought to kill Jesus because he violated that commandment, or so they said. And Jesus says that for healing a man on the Sabbath... Someone wants to kill me. And yet those same men make similar judgments in their own favor on lesser matters all the time. For example, they circumcise infants on the eighth day, according to what the requirements of the law said, even if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath day. The small part of the child's body was being fixed, even though doing so conflicted with their own interpretation of the law. I'm not saying it conflicted with God's law. I'm saying it conflicted with their interpretation of law. That is, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, that was healing a child in the sense of putting them right physically, but that's permissible. Yet they objected to Jesus fixing the entire body of a man who was a paralytic because it happened on a Sabbath. Once again, there's no law against God healing someone on the Sabbath. That's a man-made restriction that they were objecting to. But in any case, he's highlighting their hypocrisy, which is that they judge by appearances rather than by true righteousness. The main point of the chapter is now starting to come into focus, and that is that his identity, Jesus' identity, is the primary question throughout John's Gospel, and again in this chapter, and he's exposing this strong difference of opinion that existed in Israel between those who wanted to think Jesus was who he said he was and those who were adamantly opposed, and standing between those two groups is this religious leadership driving a wedge, separating those two parts as far apart as they could be separated. John is driving home in this chapter the reality of this division within Israel. And it began even in his family and continued all the way down into every aspect of Jewish society. As we look at the rest of the discourse, pay attention to the way John highlights now this back and forth division. Lastly, look at their reliance on their leaders for guidance and instruction concerning this matter and concerning Jesus. Look at verse 25. We'll read 25 now. All the way to 36. So some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching, saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who has sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he says, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? You see the, the back and forth. No one fully committed. No one fully convinced. The crowd saw all the signs that would lead them to suspect Jesus was Messiah. And in their own words, they really betray their, their lack of willingness to accept what they've seen. They say, is this not the one that the Pharisees are seeking? Referring to the Jewish leaders, they are seeking. In other words, isn't that the famous rabbi that's been causing all the trouble? That's the guy they're looking for, isn't it? As they hear him speak, they marvel 
that Jesus is here in Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths in the temple, willing to speak openly in public and to do so knowing his life is in danger. That's what's amazing them, that he's not in hiding. But then in verse 26, they say, well, how can someone who's so wanted be here so publicly and so safely? Could it be that the leaders have come to believe he is the Christ? That's what they're basically trying to answer the question with. In other words, they're saying, we know our leaders want this guy dead and put in prison or whatever, and yet here he is teaching. Maybe it's because they've come to agree with him. That statement tells us two very important things about what's going on in the people's mind. First, they are aware that the question concerning Jesus centers on this issue of Messiahship. They understand that that's the issue. The whole controversy over Jesus is, is this guy the Messiah or what? That's the issue. They're not mistaken, in other words, about what the real issue is. They also recognize that the religious leaders wanted to seize Jesus for leading the people astray on that specific question. To lead Israel astray was an offense under the Talmud that was punishable by death. So it's actually a charge, an official crime. They're saying, we know this guy is wanted for doing that thing concerning his identity. Yet, Jesus taught and he performed miracles in convincing manner such that many in the crowd, at least some, were saying, we see all the evidence we need. He's doing everything that a Messiah is supposed to do. So the issue of what to believe about Jesus is at the core and everyone knows it. And now the mere fact that he's teaching openly without fear has caused the crowd to wonder concerning the change of heart in their own leadership. That tells us the second important thing about these people, that what they believe about this man is hinging to a large degree on what their own leadership tells them. That though they've seen things, they understand things, they've been convinced to a degree, they're withholding their convictions until they hear some official rendering from on high. And only after the leaders have weighed in and become convinced themselves, will the people then follow in the same way. So they have let the leadership take the reins for their own spiritual decision. If they told this generation of Israel not to accept Jesus, then that entire generation of Israel is susceptible to perishing, which is exactly what they did, like lemmings walking off a cliff. So to help them justify their doubts, in verse 27, some begin to try to answer the question in their own way. They fall back on a myth that existed in Israel in the day, and the myth was that the true Messiah's earthly origins would be a mystery in the day that he arrived. No one would know where he came from, kind of like one of those westerns where you're looking in the fog at night and all of a sudden the shadowy figure just appears out of the dust at the end of the road, right? You know, this is a myth, and it's easily disproven from Scripture, which declares specifically and repeatedly that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David, from the city of Bethlehem, etc., which is what Jesus says in so many words in verse 28. He says, you know me, and what he means is, you know I'm Joseph's son, you know I was born in Bethlehem, you knew I grew up in Nazareth, I'm not a mystery. Everybody knows about me. And he's also saying, you know these things matter because you know I'm from the right family, the right tribe, and the right city. You know I meet all the requirements. And then he goes further and he says, the one who sent me is the Father, and you don't know him. If there's something you don't know, it's not me. <laughs> the thing you don't know is the Father who sent me, which is, of course, the whole problem. This is an unbelieving crowd. And when Jesus says, I was from God, sent by God. That, that, of course, brings back all the anger in the crowd because they perceive it as blasphemy. Here's a guy again saying he's equal to God. And so they have an interest in arresting him. But miraculously, no one's able or willing to do it. John explains that Jesus' time to be crucified had not yet come. And that's what's keeping him safe. What that means practically, I think, is that some were probably moved in the moment to seize Jesus, some in the crowd who opposed him. But in verse 31, we've heard already that there are many in the crowd that believed and their support probably prevented that occurrence from taking place in the moment. Now, by this point, the leaders in the city have heard they figured out where Jesus is. They've come into the temple. And they move to arrest him, knowing that there is a movement against him and that it's coming. Jesus warns them, look, this window of opportunity I'm giving you isn't going to last much longer. In fact, for Israel, the opportunity to seek the Messiah is limited. They were only going to have him on earth for a short time longer. And after that, Israel might seek for the Messiah. He says that you might seek for me, but you're still not going to find me. Why was Jesus so definitive in that statement? Because Israel's unique relationship with God has placed them in an equally unique position. The Messiah was promised to Israel 
And they had prophets sent by God over the generations so the nation would have no excuse for overlooking the Christ in the day that he arrived as promised. If the nation had recognized and embraced their Messiah, then, as God promised, he was willing to set up an earthly kingdom for that nation, ruled over them by their Lord, and Israel as the chief nation on the earth. But if they rejected their Messiah, then the generation of Israel to do so would see harsh judgment both temporally and eternally. Moreover, Israel as a whole would suffer greatly for many generations to follow because of that one generation's rejection. Only in the last days of an age of this rejection would then a distant generation of Israel have a new opportunity once again to receive the Messiah that the earlier generation Rejected, And in that second opportunity, they will receive him. And in that second opportunity, he will set up the kingdom and all the promises will be received. We live today between those two moments in history. Here, friends, we now find the connection in this chapter to the Feast of Booths. The Old Testament teaches that the Feast of Tabernacles is the feast that will begin the kingdom of Christ after his second coming. It looks backward to commemorate the moment that Israel walked into the land under Joshua. But it looks forward as well in commemorating or symbolizing the feast that Jesus will conduct amongst all who are with him in the kingdom as the kingdom itself begins. It's the feast to celebrate the arrival of the true kingdom on earth, which the earlier arrival in the land prefigures or pictures. It can only arrive, however, that feast can only arrive after the nation of Israel as a whole embraces their Messiah. And if you want some further evidence out of the Gospels that this is the way that the Jewish people understood the feast, just go back to the Transfiguration where you see James and John looking upon Jesus transfigured into his glory, standing next to Elijah and Moses. And they assume they see the kingdom now arriving. They assume they see this is the beginning of this kingdom that's been promised. What was their response to that insight? They said, can we set up booths for all three of you? Tents, in other words. They presumed that this was the beginning of the kingdom. So what's the first thing you do in the kingdom? Feast of booths. So it's further evidence that the Jews themselves understood that feast was the beginning of the kingdom and it would be the first thing they would participate in. So that is the timetable for the events of chapter 7. It's intended to picture a moment of glory for Israel when they embrace their Messiah holistically and receive the promises that that provides. But it is dependent on all Israel accepting Christ as Messiah. The promises of God made to Israel were for the nation. If the nation does not accept him, the nation does not receive the promises. There's no partial fulfillment possible. Moses made this promise to Israel in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, he says this, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse, curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord... God has banished you and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I have commanded you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of the ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. To put it simply, there is a day to come when Israel will be called back into their land given a heart to be perfectly knowledgeable of God and perfectly obedient to his law, which requires that they be glorified, for there's no other way to achieve that. And in this glorified state, regathered in the land, they will find themselves receiving all the blessing God promised them, that is, the land and all the goodness therein. The kingdom, in other words. 
So in a time of glory to come, Israel will be put in their land and given the promises God gave them. But Moses also tells the people in Leviticus 26 that they will reach this level of blessing only by a national confession of repentance and a national faith in the Messiah. Nothing less than 100 percent belief and acceptance is required for these things to take place. Those things take place at the second coming of Christ as a result of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, according to Zechariah chapter 12. And yet, here we are with the Messiah on earth, having appeared to Israel, having announced himself, having come into their midst, having proven himself. And if there was ever a time when someone might have assumed or expected that the Feast of Booths would have been appropriate and would have assumed that a kingdom would rapidly follow, it would have been then. It was now to be done, isn't it? The reason why he came. John brings us into the Feast of the Booths in this moment, a feast intended to commemorate Israel's entry into the Promised Land. And yet, at this arrival, you do not have universal acceptance. In fact, the very tone of the chapter is one of division and debate, of unwillingness to commit, of, of this second guessing, and in the midst of it all, a leadership that is dead set against him. John seems to be explaining to us in this chapter how much the weight must go on beyond the first coming of Christ because there was not the required universal acceptance within Israel for him at his first coming. That the Feast of Booths is not being fulfilled in his first coming because its requirements are not being met in his first coming. That is the requirement of Israel to accept him for who he said he was. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, the strength to teach and for strength to listen tonight. For those who have uh, sat patiently and considered all that your word has for them tonight, Father. I do pray, Father, that in this room there would be 100% acceptance. Even as we've studied about a time and in a place where there wasn't. I hope, Father, that uh, what we've heard tonight, if it hadn't already been the case, that we are convinced that the man who came 2,000 years ago is the Lord and Creator, the Messiah. And His coming, Father, was so that we might know our sin is forgiven by His stripes on the cross. And I pray that all who have heard those truths would be accepting them as from You, believing upon them for salvation's sake, so that when He returns, as I know He will shortly, Father, All of us will be accepted into the glory of the kingdom. And we pray for that day to come soon as well. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to meet again after the break and bring us back next week, perhaps with others, if it be your will. In Jesus' name, amen.